listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to give space for the emotions of many as we grieve the lost lives of those at the hands of gun violence and police brutality across the nation. From the shooting at the spa in Atlanta, which took the lives of eight individuals, six of them women of Asian descent, the Boulder, Colorado shooting at the Keen Supers Market, which took the lives of 10 individuals, and the police shootings of two young men named Adam Toledo and Dante Wright, resulting in their lost lives. I want to give space for these emotions as I know that many of us have been and are still grieving. That being said, please be sure to check in on your loved ones. Please check in on yourself. Practice self-care. iRise, as always, offers resources that can be found on our website at irise.du.edu. We are here for you, always, and we grieve with you. Our podcast covers a range of difficult topics, really important topics. That being said, this episode is no different, but we did want to mention that this episode will entail discussion around sexual violence and sexual assault that may be triggering for some listeners. So please practice self-care if you need to start the episode and then pause and maybe come to it at a later time or just skip this episode completely. Please do what is best for you, and we understand 100%. Please be sure just to do what's best for you. Now diving into the episode. Today's episode is with a peer of mine, Grace Wonkelman, who has done some amazing work as an undergraduate student at the University of Denver. Grace is one of the creators of the We Can Do Better movement and the We Can Do Better campaign, which highlights the stories of survivors and advocates for their protection and needs on college campuses across the nation. She has done work around combating sexual and domestic violence, as well as mental health and wellness advocacy. In 2020, Grace worked with the Feminist Majority Foundation to increase voter turnout and provide education on feminist issues on the ballot. The first thing that I want to do is just go ahead and pass the mic over to Grace. Grace, would you be willing to introduce what We Can Do Better is for those who may be unfamiliar or not DU affiliated? We Can Do Better was started about this time last year and it was created as an Instagram account where survivors of sexual violence could anonymously share their stories and the account highlighted these different stories that were submitted in the words of survivors and just posted them to the account and it kind of blew up. We knew that there were way more survivors at DU than I think one might initially think, but I think even we were surprised at the amount of stories we got and just all of the different action and events and narratives that came after that account was created. And it really just put a spotlight on sexual violence at the University of Denver, but then also just the issue in higher education in general. So thank you for that. So the first thing I would want to do is I kind of want to learn more about the process of getting We Can Do Better started up. So were there any surprising expectations that you had or anything that surprised you? Did you have some highs and lows 
creating we can do better and the process of getting it to that point where people are beginning to talk about it. I'm going to go back a little bit. And this is just more my personal story of like how this got going. But uh, in September of last year, I was a sophomore. I was actually at a friend's house and I was drinking and it was a not that big of a party, but I was drinking water that I had poured myself. And and the reason why I was able to like catch what was happening so fast was because I was drinking water. And I think someone slipped something into my drink because one minute I was standing talking to friends and then the next I was just going down. And luckily I had great friends there, took care of me, got me to the hospital and everything was kind of taken care of. But I was really, really frustrated about that. And of just when I reported it, how the response was, oh yeah, this has happened so much. But then, yeah, but there's not much we can do. And, and I think like all of the different responses I got, it just, it was really, really frustrating. I was so glad that nothing happened to me, but I was also so sick of hearing the fact that I was lucky because yeah, in some ways I was lucky, like nothing worse happened, but how is that our definition of lucky? And so after that happened, I decided there was an opening for the Corbell for student government as the Corbell Senator. And so I decided to run for that because I was like, oh, maybe I can do some work in student government and like bring some attention to this issue. I've heard way too many stories from friends and had my own stories that I think like what happened that night, just it was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I think that was just when the floodgates opened and I was so fed up with it. And so I joined USG with the intention of like working on this issue. And through student government, I met other students who were really interested in doing similar work. I worked with Shannon Saul and we just, we wanted to figure out a way to highlight the issue of gender-based violence on our campus because we knew that it was way, way too prevalent. And honestly, all of fall quarter, we kind of ran into roadblocks. Like we were kind of following the proper channels and in a lot of ways it got us nowhere. I think it was really hard for anyone to take us seriously or listen. And it was kind of, it kind of illustrated some of my least favorite things about like bureaucracy and higher education of, because it was like, well, go to this person, go to that person, but then not much was done. And so then we came back winter quarter and I think everyone was getting frustrated. And so we just decided to create the Instagram account of what if people could share their stories? We didn't, we just saw it as the next step. We didn't think it would be as big as it was, but it really, it really did blow up kind of overnight. We got dozens of stories just in the first night and had like thousands of followers by the first week. It showed us how big this is and how important it is for us to highlight this issue and actually do something about it. I think a lot about like Tarana Burke. I was listening to this podcast, actually, the Brene Brown podcast, which is called Unlocking Us. And it's this episode where she shares the mic with Tarana Burke. 
And in their conversation, she talks about a lot of the similar things that you talked about in terms of giving space for experiences and also hearing experiences and supporting survivors. And I think going back to what you were saying before about your initial experiences, when you were roofied at the party, is that a lot of people are like, oh, she's just lucky or, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And I think that right there places a burden on survivors where when they share their stories, they're not taken seriously and they're not heard in a way where the focus is on them. It's always kind of on something else or it's being shifted. And so I think when you were talking, that was something that I really just wanted to highlight is the storytelling element of We Can Do Better, which gives space for survivors to share their stories without being questioned and without receiving the pushback that a lot of survivors who share their stories do receive yeah. from those they share them with. Yeah, I think that was definitely our intention. Narratives, it's always, I think, such an important place to start. And you don't, I don't think it's ever the last step. It's never just sharing your stories, but for combating any issue. But I think starting with what are the lived experiences of different individuals? How is this affecting people in the real world? Because you can have as many statistics as you want, as many research studies. But I think it's important to start with a narrative because it humanizes it. It really shows how, just how impactful the issue is. And yeah, and I think that's just, it's really helpful for survivors to also see their stories being reflective and realizing that they're not alone. And yeah, I think just storytelling is so important and so impactful. I'm curious kind of going off of that, back to what we had talked about before about being a student and not necessarily originally coming in with the plans of, I'm gonna be an activist, I'm gonna be community organizer and all that. Within just your time as a person within working with We Can Do Better, how did you personally deal with the emotional drain of that that can happen sometimes and hearing these stories and then reflecting. So I'm wondering how did you practice self-care or how were you impacted by kind of the influx of being both a student and an activist at this point and a regular person? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think when it was starting off, I did not practice self-care and I did not really handle it well. I think I I wasn't expecting everything that was going to happen and I already had a lot on my plate and there were moments where it just got so overwhelming. I actually I had a lot of incidents where I get just like I feel like my body responds to stress kind of instantly and so in February after like we can do better was kind of exploding. I just remember I was throwing up one week, like just straight. And it wasn't because of anything I ate. It was just the pure stress. And like, I just was freaking out and, and I didn't really know what to do. And I think 
it took a while for me to realize that like, if I want to help survivors, one that includes myself and I need to take care of myself. It was difficult to read all of the stories and just hear about them. I think Tarana Burke actually talked about this in one of the interviews I read with her, but she was talking about the words me too and how they're like at the same time, both some of the most comforting words you can say in here and also the most devastating because like hearing someone say me too to an experience that makes you feel so isolated and alone is so important and so comforting and the solidarity is so important. But then also I think realizing the scope of the issue and kind of knowing how much pain something has caused me has caused others that much pain and how many others, I think that was just, that was really intense to deal with. And I think there was just so much all at once that I needed to deal with. And I think initially I definitely didn't do great, but then I think I plugged into some resources and really tried to prioritize self-care. And that's definitely something I'm still learning to do and still trying to like be okay with and learning how to accept help. But yeah, definitely a journey. (laughs) That's fair. And I think self-care in general is something that is, like you said, a journey. And entirely when you're working, when you're fighting against a problem, it can be so hard to take that time and be like, how am I doing? How is this affecting me? Because this the injustice that we deal with on a normal basis is really just a terrible thing to have to see on a daily level. And we're human, right? So we're going to have human emotions. We're gonna be tired. We're gonna be sad. We're gonna be angry. And there's nothing wrong with taking time and space to check in with yourself. But sadly, a lot of times with people who are fighting a lot of the issues that we have in society, sexual violence being a huge one of those, self-care doesn't get to happen because it's go, go, go. It's constant, constant. There was something that you had said, and I think it's a dichotomy, which is really interesting. I think it embodies a lot of the conversations that we have around we can do better, but then also the Me Too movement times up and sexual violence in our communities in general. But the idea of seeing other people's stories as a way of fighting against that feeling of isolation, but in that same way, feeling that grief of knowing that someone else went through that. And I think that's just a really interesting thing to sit with and acknowledge. How has that dichotomy, how has that impacted you? Like kind of sitting with that, how me too can be so empowering, but also so difficult to deal with. Mm. I think, honestly, I think it's something I'm still processing. And I think I'll always be sitting with it. But I do think in some ways, it's such a powerful thing because I think with an issue like sexual violence, it is so common and it always has been. Uh, We're talking about it now the most more than ever, but it's not that 
it's this new issue. Like it has existed for all time. Silence is one of the most effective weapons to keep people down, to keep change from happening and to fight progress and silence and shame. Because when you think you're alone, but this problem is actually affecting. So for instance, in higher education, it's affecting one in four undergraduate women. And and you think you're the only one. That's such an effective way to keep people from speaking out and changing the problem. And when you talk about sexual violence, it's not a crime of sex. It's a crime of power. So to actually make meaningful change, you have to get to the root of the power and get to these abuses. And it's not as simple as having an orientation class that's talking about, okay, what is consent? Obviously, I'm for that. I think that's good. But it's it's so much deeper because it's about deeply, deeply entrenched systems of power and privilege. And I think honestly, silence just maintains those systems. And so I have to keep reminding myself that because hearing more stories doesn't mean that there's more violence happening. It means that more people are breaking free from the constraints of that silence and able to speak out about their pain and able to actually make the next step in enacting change. I mean, like you can't fix any problem without naming it. And so I think it's the first step in addressing the problem. And so as heart-wrenching as it is to see all your, like how many loved ones or friends or just community members are affected by these issues, I think in some ways it's actually a testament to like the importance of community and because it's so much better to speak out together than like stay silent alone. There were two things that you said that I just really wanted to highlight. And one of the quotes that you said was, silence is an effective weapon to keep people down or to prevent change from happening. And then another thing that you just finished saying was, you can't fix any problem without naming it. I'm thinking a lot about the first one as silence is an effective weapon to keep people down. And I think so much that we learn is receiving language for things. Like what is gaslighting? What is coercion? What are these different elements that we might be experiencing, but we don't have names for them? And sometimes just the power of a name can make you see things that are in front of you that you might not have seen before. But I was thinking a lot about the anonymous nature of We Could Do Better is a really healing resource and that it gives survivors the chance to be vocal, but still maybe anonymous if that's what they would prefer because you know, a lot of survivors do not want to be named, do not want to come forward. So I think that's a really special element of We Could Do Better because it allows for storytelling to happen, allows for that sharing, but in a way that protects the survivor in a way that gives them that, that space. It's, it's interesting because I'm so open about being a survivor and I talk about this issue all the time. Like it's some of what I'm studying. I like, in a lot of ways, my life revolves around like studying and combating the issue of sexual violence. And at the same time, I still have yet to really fully 
tell my story and attach my name to it and stuff. And I think about that and I think about how many people are the same way because it's interesting. Like, I think a lot of people like expect me as this, since I created this of like, oh, I don't have any shame and there's no shame in what happened and you're not dealing with that still. And I don't, I think it's gotten a lot better. And I think creating we can do better has helped a lot, but I don't know if it will ever go away fully. And so I think honestly that anonymity is so important because, and for so many reasons, I think some people still are dealing with the shame. I know I am. And, and that's totally normal and natural. And you can think about retaliation of there's a lot of people who it's safe to share their story as long as it's anonymous. But the minute you speak out about your story and with your name attached another's name attached, it kind of becomes a whole new situation. And there's a lot of like really, really harmful things that can be said. And I think like we've seen how the media and just social media, like how many different platforms treat survivors of sexual violence of it's definitely the first reaction is not to believe. And so I think having it be anonymous, I think is really important because the goal of sharing these stories is to validate survivors primarily. And then to raise awareness about the scope of the issues. But first and foremost, it's comforting and supporting survivors. And anyone has the option to share their story with their name attached. But I think having an outlet where you can just share what happened to you and read similar stories, but not have to go to class and have people look at you differently. I think that's really important because it's totally fine if some people aren't ready to share their story at all. If some people aren't are ready to share their story and not attach their name to it, or if some people want to share their story with their name attached, I think no matter where anyone is at in the healing process, it's valid and it's good for them, but just making sure to provide as many options as possible is important. I think what you just said about wherever they are in the healing process is valid for them is something that it's just so important to highlight because no matter at what stage a survivor is at, whether they're at the stage where they want to put their knee on something, they want it to be heard, they want to name people, or if they're at the stage where they don't want to do that, either one is fine. A lot of times when a survivor shares their story, people try to pressure them into reporting it or pressure them into doing these different things. And I think what you're really highlighting is the importance of just letting the survivor decide how they want to share their story, if they want to share their story, how they want to proceed. And I think as friends of survivors, it's really important to just note the importance of just listening to a survivor, not with the intent of telling them what to do, not with the intent of telling them how they should react or anything, but giving that power back to them to make their own choices. Something that you had said before about sexual assault not being about sex, but being about power and control. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. 
And so when we are talking about letting survivors choose how they want to go forward, if they want to go forward, how they want to do things, it's about giving that power back to them after it's been taken away. So I think that's just something that you had said before that I really want to highlight and also kind of highlight the importance of those who know survivors and the role of someone who knows a survivor can be instrumental in their healing, but also on a side note of that, be detrimental to their healing too. Yeah. yeah. We often don't realize, and I don't have studies to cite off the top of my head, but I know there are studies backing this up of just how impactful the very first person you share your story to is on how you'll proceed going forward and how the survivor views what happens to that happen to them and all of that. I know personally, I, <laughs> I did not have the best reaction. I, I was very religious and I was at a Catholic retreat right after I was assaulted. And I shared this with a priest that I trusted and the, the response definitely, it was just blaming me and saying that God has a way of correcting our sins. And, and I think honestly, and then after I got that response, I didn't talk to anyone about this for at least a year. And I just stayed silent for as long as I like possibly could. And and I know I'm not the only one who has experienced that, whether it's people in their faith community. I think faith communities can be some of the best places to heal, but they can also be some of the most damaging communities. And then I also think what in your family, like all of us have a responsibility to one another if someone ever confides in you of making sure that you're just careful in how you respond and that you're validating them and trying to empower them because like you might be the first person and if if you are a jerk about it or if you kind of your first reaction is disbelief or if you're doing that with someone else and someone sees that I think all of it it can really, really harm people without you knowing that. Like I've noticed this week how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out um, and was talking about the insurrection at the Capitol and, and the trauma that she experienced in sharing that she was a sexual assault survivor. And then on social media this week, I've been noticing how many people were saying nasty things. And then I saw this tweet, which I could not have said it better than myself, of... AOC probably won't see the nasty things you're saying. There's a chance she could, and that's horrible, but she probably won't see them. But you probably know a survivor who will. And so even if you're talking about a famous survivor, whether it's different celebrities who came out in the Me Too movement or any of the things in pop culture, and that's how you respond, it might not be intentionally be your first response to a survivor you know and love but they're gonna realize that and they're gonna recognize and I think they're gonna subconsciously note to themselves that you are not a safe person to turn to and I think that's something that's so important it's not just how you personally treat your loved ones it's 
how you treat the people you dislike the most of someone who it's a celebrity that really bothers you, but they come forward. And I think all of that stuff, like people notice. And I think we really should be more cognizant of kind of having communication that's based on care, even if it's not like your best friend or a really close loved one. When you were talking, I was thinking about the idea of communication. So to give a background about me, just quickly, is I worked as a prevention intern for the Blue Bench, which is a Denver organization that focuses on combating sexual violence within the Denver area. And so within this, we talked a lot about the pro-social bystander model, which basically says a lot of what you just mentioned about survivors hearing something or seeing how someone else deals with someone else's assault and how they react to that. The pro-social bystander model is essentially a model which states that within our community, we can create essentially the environment that we want. So by combating how we deal with victim blaming, combating rape culture and other things like that, um, starting within the community instead of outside. And when you were talking, I was thinking about something that we used to talk about a lot with on the prevention team is the idea of jokes, of rape jokes. And how rape jokes are seen a lot of times as, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a funny thing. It's not harmful. But if you think about some of the jokes and we set it up where a survivor might be in the room and you say a rape joke and everyone's laughing, that is immediately going to create an environment in which they do not feel safe and in which they do not feel if they wanted to, that they would share their story or that they could come to any of those people for support. But then on the flip side, say someone makes a rape joke and there is a perpetrator there, the idea coming from that or the message coming from that, the fact that the joke was made and that people are laughing is that rape is a joking matter and that what the perpetrator did was nothing more than joke. It was a little funny thing. So I think the way that you're really highlighting language and highlighting how actions and words matter and they have power is really important. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah. I, the point you, you brought up, a, a perpetrator being in the room. I've, I've never actually like heard it said like that, but I think that's so true. And yeah, I've, I've never thought about it that way. And I think also like, I think very few people identify as a perpetrator. Like very few perpetrators think of themselves as perpetrators. I think a lot of times they think that what they did was sex or maybe a bad night or yeah, maybe they made a couple mistakes, but I think very few people kind of look in the mirror and say, okay, yeah, I'm a rapist. And so when we minimize these actions, I think it prevents them from coming to terms with what they did. And, and it really like kind of perpetuates this narrative of like so many things of, yeah, it's not really assault and how so many traumatizing experiences are kind of dismissed as not actually traumatizing or a joke. And it really is true. 
Like, I think so many people have seen the pyramid of violence and how at the top it's murder and rape and, and physical violence, but, but that can't happen without violent rhetoric at the bottom. And that's not just with sexual violence. I think it's with any kind of violence. And yeah, it starts with language. It starts with your thoughts and then it escalates to violent. But I think we kind of think, and in terms of sexual violence or race, I think we think of people as like, okay, you're either good or you're bad. Like you're either a rapist or you're not, and you're good and you're not doing anything, or you're either racist or you're not, and you're a good person. It's totally not like that. Like, it's totally not like either, or it's all like this gradient. And things build up on each other and you can be actively perpetuating cycles of violence without ever laying a hand on another person. And you can still be culpable for violence. And I think like that's such an important thing to realize about any form of violence. And I've spent a lot of time working on sexual violence. And so that's where I see it the most, but I think in so many different arenas, you can see it. Something that when you were talking, I reflected back on something that we had talked about at the very beginning was the response when you were sharing your story by Title IX. And they said that, oh, you know, it wasn't that bad or, oh, this happens a lot. And I was thinking about how we normalize things in our communities. I think even at the very beginning, I called it roofied, right? So if we think about the origins of the word roofied, it's literally just a nickname for a drug because it happens so much in on college campuses that they gave it a nickname. And so if we think about that, like even the fact that that was the first thing I was called, I was like roofied, that shows right there how normalized this is. Yeah. Yeah. And even in like just pop culture of different songs or TV shows, I'm like, I think about the TV show Gossip Girl, which I know is like really old and there's a lot of really cringe things. But I think like when I was younger, I like, I was in love with Chuck Bass and I thought he was like this dream boy. And in the first episode, he assaults two women. And, and he's just painted as this, like the ideal man because he's wealthy and attractive, but he's so violent. (laughs) Like, and, and I mean, I think he's like a very explicit example of that, where he's like, he literally is assaulting women in the first episode and hitting his girlfriend and stuff. But then in so many areas, you can just see it normalized of possessiveness or just stalking and all this, these different harmful behaviors that are just seen as like normal relationships or like different things. And, and it's really sad because I, then I think like I've been talking with friends and people will just like bring up like, oh yeah, this bad sex story. And they're laughing about it and joking about it. And what they're describing is rape. And it's so sad how normal it is and how we just kind of accept it because it is, it's everywhere. 
I was thinking about the importance of seeing representation of what healthy relationships look like or what even healthy sex looks like, consensual sex between partners. And the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about representation is I absolutely loved the Rocky movies. And in the very first Rocky movie, there's a scene with Rocky and Adrian and it was after I was like doing work. So I had language in my head for these things. And I was watching the scene. And when I was younger, I was like, oh, it's so romantic. Like, it's so sweet. And then I watched it when I was older. I was like, that's literally coercion. Like, he won't let her leave the room. He won't let her call her brother. She says like multiple times that she wants to go home. And yet it's set up in this way where it's like, this is the man you want, or this is the relationship you should want. And so even though we may not realize it, the representation that we're ingesting does and can in some instances impact the way that we view relationships. And we may think that a relationship is healthy, that it's not. So I think that brings up, what you talked about brings up a really important topic of examining what healthy relationships look like, examining what healthy sexual relationships look like. Just yeah. And I honestly, like, I, I've been thinking about this for a while. Okay, one book that really gets into this and it's specifically examining these questions in the context of sexual violence on college campuses, but it's called Sexual Citizens. And, and it really looks at a lot of these issues. I think college is really the first time where so many people are stepping into serious relationships or you're independent, you're on your own you're really doing so much, like there's so much new about college and everyone's kind of figuring it out. And you're just going off of what, what you've been basically educated on up until now. And so I think, of course, it's so important to have orientation, to bring everyone at least to the best of your abilities on the same page. But really the education that's necessary for college is not just like math, science, reading and stuff. You, you can't come into college without learning about this stuff. And I mean, very few people actually do. Like, I think I didn't learn enough about it going into college. And I think like a lot of the education that needs to be done by the time you're in college, I think in some ways it's kind of too late learning about consent should be taught from such an early age of ownership over your body should be taught from such an early age because if you're being taught one thing of you don't have full control over your body if you're taught as like a five-year-old kid of no anyone who can hug you or anyone can like play with your hair or anything like that like you have to be polite and just let them do that then you're getting taught the message that your body is not really yours. And so then when the situations escalate and so you're in college, after having 18 years of that messaging ingrained in your brain, you're not gonna necessarily know how to take ownership of your body or assert that. And I think that's a huge issue of no one really has enough education over consent and healthy relationships. And then it's it's not represented enough in the media and and so I think there's a lot of factors going against us and of course just because it's like it might be too late in college doesn't mean that you shouldn't start but I do think like 
if you want to prevent violence in relationships or just any kind of violence in college, you have to start in elementary school. Just like if you want students to excel in their math classes in college, you have to teach them like what one plus one is in kindergarten. I, I love what you just said, because I think what you're highlighting is the idea that it has to start at a young age. And I think that one example that you made is one that I know I have personal experience with and a lot of other people I know is the one where you were forced to give people hugs <laughs> as a kid. And at the time, we might not think, we might think that's, oh, that's innocent, that's not a thing. But like you said before, that's creating this idea that their bodies aren't their own and that they're for other people or that other people can be in their personal space without their consent. I think it's a really important thing to highlight. It's just the idea of starting these conversations at a young age and setting up how we want to be good partners, have healthy or sexual relationships at a young age. Because like you said, college is honestly too late. So we have to have these conversations and create the environment and the community that we want to live in. There is one last thing that I wanted to just highlight about we can do better. And also something that I just like to bring up in like these conversations is something that I think was really impactful. Well, we can do better is impactful period by itself <laughs> alone. But something I think that shocked people and really interests them was the idea that not all of the stories came from women identified people. And I think when we're talking about sexual violence, a lot of times, because women are disproportionately affected, but we also don't necessarily hear the stories as much of, of men or hear the stories of people who are non-binary or trans. So that's kind of an important part that I just wanted to highlight is the intersectionality. Such an important thing to note though, of when you think of kind of who sexual violence affects, I think a lot of people think of like helpless white women, which <laughs> of course white women are affected by this, but that's only one section of survivors. And I think white women definitely dominate conversations about like representing survivors and and sexual violence looks different with who it affects i think like with men there's so much stigma in coming forward and there's so many different social pressures of how you can confront that it is such an intersectional issue because it's a crime of power and so you can't you can't look at the power dynamics that cause sexual violence without looking at all of the other power dynamics in our society. Like there is a reason why people of color and non-binary folks and members of the LGBTQ plus community are affected more by sexual violence. It's because they have been systematically more disempowered. And so, and I think like thinking of sexual violence as this like white women's issue can be a really harmful lens because then it really creates this just cursoral response to it. 
when I like started just getting fired up about sexual violence, kind of in high school, I was like, oh, we just need to lock all perpetrators up. I hope they like rot in prison and stuff. And I think that's a natural kind of thought process for a lot of people. Like, I think a lot of people think about that. And like one example that's just really clear for me is just thinking about my entire thought process with Harvey Weinstein. Because when he was sentenced to prison, I really thought to myself of like, thank God, I hope he rots in prison. And I don't think I'm the only person to have thought that. Not at all. And then actually earlier, like this past year when he got COVID, there was a part of me that was a little bit happy about it. And and I was sitting there, I'm like, well, he deserves it. And then that's when I stopped myself and really like, okay, (laughs) no, because Harvey Weinstein really represents the most privileged part of our society. I mean, he is wealthy, white, he's a man, and, and he has represented how he can abuse this power. And so now he is in prison and now he's facing consequences for his actions, but the justice system does not give out consequences based off of the severity of your crime. So much of it is about power and the privilege you have in this system. So if Harvey Weinstein is rotting, and he is that wealthy, he's white, he's a man. Like if that's how the person who kind of gets the best treatment from the system is getting it, how is everyone else getting treated? And I think like that's such an important thing to look at and and such an important thing to just kind of try to reconcile with. I still don't, I, I think I'm still really trying to think about this and explore this and learn more about this because of course it can be natural to want to lock up people who have caused harm, but does that really address the issue? And, and is it actually equitable? Because as a white woman, I can call the police and they will probably believe me. I mean, I think it will depend if I'm accusing a white man, maybe not, but there has been historical patterns of white women calling the police on black men and weaponizing that and weaponizing accusations of rape to kill men. I mean, like look at Emmett Till, the Central Park Five of how many times black men have been wrongfully accused of crimes and how it's it's cost them their life. And so I think it's just so important when we're looking at sexual violence of I think the only response sometimes we can think of is a carceral one, because that's really one of the only responses we've been shown. But I feel like there has to be a better solution than just locking someone up and wishing them to rot in prison, because no one should rot in prison. Like, that's not what our justice system should be for. And I think it's definitely something I do not have nearly all the answers on. Like, I'm really just learning about it, but I think it's so important to think about and just all of the equity issues in sexual violence um, in terms of reporting and then just in terms of the justice system and how we respond to it.
this is something that I've often found and that a lot of people have voiced is that if you are someone who has a marginalized identity within the conversation of sexual violence, and that can be a sec your sexual orientation, race, gender, et cetera, et cetera, that you often have to separate either, I'm just gonna use an example, um, a black community, and I forget exactly where this took place, but there was actually a, a cop who would patrol black communities. And so he would repeatedly on, during his patrols, because he patrolled the neighborhood regularly, he would rape black women on his patrols. And so one of the things that led him to keep doing that was the fact that it was in a poor neighborhood, it was in a black neighborhood, and thus the women would be less likely to be believed by the court of law. Plus he was a cop, so he already had that kind of on his side. But also a lot of black women wouldn't report, and this is separate from that, so that's a separate story, but a lot of black women wouldn't report their assailant if he was black because they didn't want to put him into the system that targets black men. Yeah. And that is such a heavy thing to look at because this person has caused you harm, this person has violated you, but you don't want to report it because you don't want to pan them into a system that just feeds on that oppression. There's so many intersections about how injustice impacts another injustice. Like we can always link these things back to other things. But I think what you said is just something that is extremely worth highlighting is that also when we're talking about sexual violence, we have to be talking about the criminalization. What, are, what does this look like? You know, a lot of people talk about transformative justice. How does this look like within the prison realm? To kind of wrap us up, I think a lot of what we've talked about today has been on getting survivors the power back and deciding how they want to move forward. When a survivor does choose to share their story, being sure to just listen, not to give advice, not to try and direct them in which way you think that they should go, giving that power back. We talked a lot about also identity and the intersections of different identities. And we also talked a lot about voice. And I mean voice by silence also, and speaking your truth or choosing not to. But I think something with the silence piece that I just wanted to highlight really quick is another group that also experiences high rates of sexual violence, which is those with disabilities. So I think we're talking also about voice is there are survivors that cannot, may not actually be able to verbally express their story. And so I think that alone just speaks back to what we had talked about earlier about creating education young. I know there are many people who are trying to create curriculums specifically for those with disabilities to be able to teach them consent, to be able to teach them that their body is their own. And so I think I really wanted to highlight that it does start young. We are responsible for ensuring that our communities are creating a culture of care and not a culture of harm. And that when we see harm being done, that we don't normalize it. That we speak up 
and try to create environments where survivors are heard and try to create environments that protect and care. I just think that's a really important. Are were there any other takeaways from this episode that I missed that you'd like to highlight? When you were you were talking about um, how not all survivors are able to verbalize that they're survivors or communicate that, and I, something I've been thinking about lately is just how not everyone's a survivor, and I think we have to remember that. I I personally love the word survivor, and I prefer to use it over the word victim. But I also think sometimes there's this false narrative. And I would will say that I think it's also pushed by media when they portray like rape in TV shows. I think of like Game of Thrones as an example of sexual violence is not something that makes you stronger. And I think sometimes we act like it is. And, and though I think the word survivor can be great I'm not stronger because of my assault. I'm stronger because of all of the work I did in response to it. And I think a lot of people do come out on the other side stronger after their experience. But to say that it's because of their experience, I think it's just, it's totally wrong. And I think like in TV shows, sometimes for female characters, like you'll see it as this character like development plot line of oh like the character needs to be grittier or just tougher and so she'll overcome this and for a lot of people it doesn't make them stronger it it can really debilitate them and and also there's a lot of people who just don't survive I think of Daisy Coleman who was one of the founders of Safe Bay, which is an organization that works on preventing sexual violence in high school and promoting consent education. And she was featured in the documentary, Audrey and Daisy, and she actually died by suicide this past year. And her, her story, like that reflects so many other people's story. And so I think not everyone who is a survivor is able to say that they're a survivor because there's countless ways that people are silenced, whether it's because of the perpetrator having power over you, whether that's in the form of money or privilege or anything, whether that's physically you can't, you have disabilities where you're unable to speak out or because you lost your voice because you died from what happened. And I think we have to think about that because I've been hurt, like told so many times of like, oh, like you're just, you're badass, you're tough. And like, I try to like come across that way sometimes. And like, I do think I have gotten stronger and more empowered because of the work I'm doing, but in no way is it because of what happened to me. That made me weaker and that took my power away. I have just been working to build it back up. And I think that is the case for so many people. And to kind of be like, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't know if that's completely true. I think you can always emerge stronger, but it's not gonna be directly because of what happened to you. I think that 
word survivor is one too that some people like to use it some people don't to describe themselves some people are good with saying survivor some people aren't so i think just even that word there kind of embodies what we've talked about is letting the person decide how they want to be defined letting the person decide if they want to share if they don't want to share letting the person decide what they're going to do what you just said just reiterates the importance of giving that power back and even labeling. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about us and the work that we do, please visit irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. The music for this particular podcast episode is by Matt Quinton, and it's called Waves. Once again, thank you for listening to another episode, and we'll see you soon.